once again bear with me on uh, uh, the status of my voice this morning. I did test, and this is just a, uh, oh, yeah, that's, our slides are a little bit ahead there. Why isn't this working? There we go. Go back to my exciting title slide there. This is just a, a generic off-brand virus that's affecting me, but uh, anyway. Uh, as you can see there, we are continuing our um, study of uh, the book of Luke, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. I'm not sure what page that's on uh, in the Bible that's around the, the chairs in front of you. I would suggest uh, that you find one if you can, and uh, if somebody wants to yell out the page number, feel free to, to do that. We'll give you permission just this once to yell things out in the church. Uh, that's a joke. Um, you will want one because, um, as you can see, the slides that I have are, are more about just stupid things like what you see right there, uh, vague metallica reference, uh, rather than uh, actually having the Bible passages on them. So let me go ahead at this point in reading our scripture passage this morning. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. Jesus speaking says, And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, my wife Rebecca is from Pittsburgh, and she's, she's waving, and looking. don't worry, this isn't about you, this is about the crazy place that you uh, are from. So she's from a, a little uh, borough called Plum, which is surprisingly devoid of plum trees, and also like most of... Um, Pittsburgh, it is surprisingly devoid of any coherent system of roads. Uh, the streets just twist and turn and intersect at just completely random angles. You have no idea uh, how to get where you're going if you don't already know. It's not like a grid and like I want to go that way, so I'll turn on that road and it'll take me that way. No, it might turn around and you end up over there. You might end up, you know, in Michigan or something for all we know. It's like they hired that M.C. Escher guy to design their road system, you know, the guy with the staircases that whatever, but, but they have excuses, my wife would like you to know, and so even the street signs make no sense. Um, you've already seen a, a, maybe a preview of where this is going on our slides, but all my life, you know, I learned that if you see a big red octagon that says stop on it, you don't really think about it, you just stop. And I know that some people, you know, they, they do the kind of rolling stop where you don't actually stop. You just kind of slow down, and then if nobody's looking, you go through, um, and, and we'll pray for you if that's what you do. But um, what I wasn't prepared for was the time that, you know, Becca was driving. She usually does because it's terrifying driving around there unless you grew up with it. But the, the time that she just completely ignored a stop sign and kept going... And I'm seeing this red octagon that says stop, and there's cars and things around, and my life just flashes before my eyes. And you've seen the picture of it. I don't know if you can read, um, but the stop sign has fine print underneath it. It says stop except right turn. Now, what kind of crazy person 
puts fine print on a stop sign. At least it wasn't the other way around, like a go sign, except right turn, like you have to stop, and that's in the fine print. Uh, you're just supposed to see some things and know in uncertain terms what it means. A stop sign means stop. That should be a no-brainer, but uh, fine print is disturbing, isn't it? Fine print is where the message that you just read is completely erased uh, by the fine print. Your insurance agent says, you know, we've got you covered, and then something happens, and the fine print tells you, ha, you're on your own. So is the passage I just read, is that the gospel's fine print? Here we read, or we sang, you know, a, a song about how all our sins, they're all gone, right? Sins against the Holy One, sins against His loving Son, sins against His law we've done, sins against both God and man, sins that we have boldly planned, sins outnumbering the sand, what grace, no trace remains, they're all gone. Is there an exception? You know, the song says sins against the Holy One, sins against His loving Son. It doesn't say sins against His Holy Spirit. Is that intentional? Uh, Jesus says blaspheming in the Spirit won't be forgiven. That sin can never be all gone. And to make matters worse, uh, you might look at this and say, I have no idea what that really means. It doesn't seem to spell out exactly what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So how do I know that I haven't already committed it? Uh, there was that time when somebody asked me three questions. They asked me, who's the third person of the Trinity? And I said, the Holy Spirit. They asked me, what am I pointing to? My, and I said, nose. And then they said, what's in my hand? And I said, nothing. They just got me to say the Holy Spirit knows nothing. Did I just blaspheme the Holy Spirit, right? I hope not. I hope, you weren't, I hope you weren't answering those questions along in your head. You might be in danger, right? No. So as we dig into this text, you can say that's obviously not what it means, right? But general principle uh, is to put difficult texts in their context. It's, it's almost like real estate, you know, location, location, location. Look at where it is. Look at what came before, a sentence before and after, paragraph before and after. Look at the, the chapter. What section are we in? What's the book's whole purpose? And historical context. What's going on with the readers? Before you dive in and start microanalyzing words and things like that. So let's, let's remember some of those things, right? So the purpose of the whole book of Luke, he says at the very beginning, you can flip back to chapter 1 if you want and see this, is to give his readers certainty concerning the things they were taught. So he's not writing to destroy their assurance. Now the section that we're in in the book of Luke started back in chapter 9, verse 51. It's sometimes called the journey to Jerusalem. This is where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, where he's going to die and rise again. And he prepares his followers along the way. There's a lot of teaching where he's preparing them for their mission, for what they're going to do after he's died and risen again and ascended into heaven, essentially preparing the disciples for what they're going to do and face in the book of Acts that we read about. And one thing that Jesus prepares them for is facing opposition, facing persecution, uh, even facing death. Now, within that section, uh, the journey to Jerusalem, for a while now, we've been pointing back to something that happened in chapter 11, verse 14, where Jesus cast out a demon, and some people said, well, he just cast out demons by uh, Beelzebul, the, the, the prince of demons. So they called Jesus' ministry satanic. 
That sort of starts this, this whole section where Jesus has been responding to opposition. And if you look <clears throat> in Mark and Matthew's Gospels, that same word about blaspheming the Spirit is directly tied to that accusation that Jesus' ministry is satanic. So Jesus cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, but they attribute that to the devil. And so in, in Luke sort of gives us a lot more detail of some things that happen in between there. He kind of zooms in and, and expands Jesus' re response, and Jesus has some words for the Pharisees and for the teachers of the law we've seen in past weeks. Uh, Jesus has been railing against the Pharisees and their hypocrisy pretty much up till today's text. And then at the start of chapter 12, it tells us that Jesus has been speaking first to his disciples, primarily to his disciples, preparing them for opposition. Uh, 12 verses 4 and 5, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, right? And that, that's all they can do, but instead fear God. Uh, we see that context of opposition even in today's text, the verse right after the, the scary one about blasphemy. Jesus talks about how they'll, they'll bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities. So overall purpose here, we can say that Jesus is preparing his followers to face opposition and preparing them to stand firm without turning away, trusting in God to see them through. So I think this passage reminds me of the book of Revelation in some ways. The book of Revelation was written to a persecuted church, and it was written to encourage them to hold fast. You think of the, the letters to the seven churches at the beginning, they hold out warnings if you don't hold fast, but beautiful rewards if you do hold fast, and throughout the book there's just this ultimate promise that, that God is in control, that, that God, um, his judgment is coming on, on all wickedness, and Ultimately, the promise that Christ holds his people in his hand will see them through whatever comes. And in spite of all that, it's generally terrifying to Christians today. And we can say the same thing of, of the passage that we're looking at. You know, we worry on the one hand, is the mark of the beast, you know, a credit card or, or barcodes or maybe people today would say the COVID vaccine or something like that. Something you might unwittingly place on yourself and then suffer eternal consequences. And we also maybe are prone to worry that blaspheming the spirit is something that we could accidentally stumble into uh, and then all hope is lost. But it's what I'm saying, a just general principle for looking at the text in front of us. This passage is not in the Bible to destroy your assurance or cause you to live in perpetual fear of condemnation. The passage is meant to impress upon you the weight of what you say or, or fail to say about Jesus so that you stand firm, not by your own strength of resolve, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at this now, now that we've said all that about context. There are three basic admonitions in the passage, right? First in verses 8 and 9, there's a promise and a warning tied to whether you confess or deny Jesus. And then in verse 10, forgiveness is, is possible for those who speak against Jesus but not for those who blaspheme the Spirit. And then uh, verses 11 and 12, the Spirit will guide your words uh, when you are persecuted, so don't worry. Notice that all three of those have to do with speaking. They have to do with your words, you know, confessing or denying, speaking against Jesus or blaspheming the Spirit, uh, defending yourself or worrying about what you are going to say. 
You know, we easily look down on words today. Does it seem strange that there's such, such an emphasis on, on what you say? Uh, don't actions speak louder than words? Isn't talk cheap? But Jesus said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Actually, in, in, in Matthew's gospel, that's the next point Jesus makes after warning about blasphemy, is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this isn't just words, this is a genuine confession of what's in your heart, what you truly believe. So the Bible places a lot of weight on this kind of confession. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So there's a connection there. That's the first evidence of what's in your heart, is, is confession of, of Christ. That's why we baptize people upon profession of faith. We don't have some probationary period where we look at other evidences. This is a point I feel like I've made somewhere in this sermon series before, and that's when you tell us who Jesus is, you tell us who you are. It tells us what's in your heart, or tells us who's in your heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking about a genuine confession, right? This may have been clearer in Luke's day, and it may be clearer today in places uh, where Christians will face persecution, violent persecution, uh, places where you confess Jesus as Lord and you might be thrown into jail, you might have your head removed from your body. You're not going to say that, most likely, unless you really mean it, correct? Uh, in other words, one piece of evidence that your confession of Jesus is not just words is that your confession of Jesus endures in the face of persecution. There are other pieces of evidence, too. We could go to 1 John and, and talk about how a genuine, genuine confession of Christ uh, shows itself in loving God's people, in obeying God's commands. And in, in our context, we might emphasize those sorts of, of things more, where the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this life are arguably still bigger threats than, than persecution where we live. That being said, we can still expect some kind of opposition, and so these words are still for us. One mark of a genuine confession of Christ is that it's not just words, it endures. Verses 8 and 9. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, son of man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is an exhortation to stand firm in your confession of Christ, even when there's a cost, whatever it may be. Uh, acknowledge in the ESV is, seems like kind of a weak term. You know, we think of acknowledge as, you know, uh, you kind of nod a little bit when you pass somebody in the hallway kind of thing. That's just acknowledging. Other translations use confess, which is what I've been calling it so far. It's more than just acknowledging that Jesus exists. It, it's claiming him. It's identifying with him, saying, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. Denying him would be saying something like, yeah, Jesus who? I don't know him. I'm not one of his followers. I don't even know what you're talking about. Does that sound like somebody that we... Uh, have read about before in scripture? Um, isn't that exactly what 
the Apostle Peter did while Jesus was on trial. Some bystanders asked him, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And, and Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter's story sheds some light on the warning in front of us. It's helpful in, in understanding uh, what this means and doesn't mean because Jesus restored Peter, right? Even after Peter's emphatic denial, three-time denial. So Jesus doesn't mean to say that any lapse into uh, denying him renders you completely unredeemable. He's not referring to you know, just a one-time or even three-time denial, but a consistent, unrepentant denial that ultimately defines what you have to say about Jesus. That means that restoration is not impossible for those who deny Jesus. But that doesn't mean that denial isn't deadly serious because Peter was in great danger. Here's how Jesus described this when he predicted Peter's denial. I, I didn't write down what chapter this was, but it's in verse 31 of some chapter of Luke that's coming up. Jesus says, Simon, that's, that's another name for Peter, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So this, this is dangerous for Peter. Satan himself has demanded to have Peter, has, has laid a claim to him. He wants to sift Peter, disciples like wheat, to destroy them. And what sees Peter through is not the strength of his resolve that fails. The only reason... Peter escapes Satan's grasp is that Jesus prays for him. Apparently, Peter's faith does not fail. Peter does deny Jesus, but it's not a failure or a destruction of his faith. It's what Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke calls a failure of nerve. Peter's faith loses this battle against fear, but his faith isn't ultimately destroyed. We know this because Peter does turn again, as Jesus says, and even strengthens his brothers, the other apostles, who were also in danger, by the way. You know, the only reason they didn't deny Jesus, too, is they weren't there. They bravely ran away. So you see a one-time or, or a, even a three- or more-time incident of denying Jesus isn't necessarily the final word about what you have to say about Jesus. But it could be to say, you know, I'll just deny Jesus this time and, and be restored like Peter later. It's not really a safe strategy. Eventually, one-time events add up to a lifetime and life-defining pattern. That's not the case with Peter. Jesus' prayer sustained him. Jesus' grace restored him so that in the book of Acts, we see Peter proclaiming Christ no matter the consequences, imprisonment, beating. Peter ultimately died rather than deny Christ, we know from, from church history. Now, we don't face in this country the, the same ferocity of persecution that Peter endured. You're very unlikely to be beaten or, or literally crucified. That doesn't mean you won't face any kind of opposition. Peter himself, since we've been talking about Peter, uh, he wrote a letter in the Bible. We have it as 1 Peter, where he uses the phrase fiery trial to describe what was mostly about Christians being slandered and, and ostracized, losing opportunities and, and their uh, social life, you might face that. Let me also add on that 
if you are seeking to live faithfully as a follower of Christ in a world that is fallen and opposed to Christ, you will face some kind of opposition. Again, some clarifications. The first one, back to 1 Peter, the reason his readers are slandered is because they no longer participate in the same sinful way of life as their non-Christian neighbors. If Peter himself was beaten and thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, but he recognizes what his readers went through as a fiery trial as well. They don't share the world's values, so the world despises them. Uh, Don't assume that you're not facing any opposition just because somebody else has it worse. I was thinking about this. If anything, it seems like we need to be more on guard. If some big moment of of persecution were to come and you're you're dragged before authorities, it's it's clear that uh, that's what the Bible is is talking about in in these situations. But if it's just a conversation where uh, I decide not to say anything, it doesn't seem quite as important, but, but it is. Second clarification, please don't take this to mean you ought to go looking for a fight or looking for trouble. Romans 12, 18 says we're to live peaceably with everyone as much as it depends on us. You know, let, let the gospel do the offending, not your politics, not your personality. So we work to minimize conflict, but if you've managed to eliminate conflict completely, you might Uh, ask yourself why. If you really feel like following Jesus is completely compatible with life in this fallen world, if you don't at all feel like an exile or a stranger in this world, that should raise some questions for us. The warning in Luke 12, 9, it should cause us to seriously examine our lives. If we deny Jesus, we deny, he will deny us if there's zero opposition, if we are really, are we really living as followers of Jesus? Have we effectively denied any connection to him? Are we in danger of denying, of him denying any connection to us? To be denied before the angels of God, it's a terrifying thought. And it's meant to be. Uh, Jesus is teaching us to fear God, not man, as he said. This is a call to self-examination. On the other hand, consider the promise that Jesus made in verse 8. If we confess Jesus, he, the Son of Man, Jesus, will confess us before the angels of God. Luke mentions the angels as part of the whole heavenly court. It's an an image of the place where God sits on his throne and and rules the universe. The angels are are associated with, with God's judgment. So picture an angel... Uh, not a, uh, you know, Roma Downey from the old Touched by an Angel show, for those of you who lived through that phase, or not a pudgy little toddler with, with wings. I don't know if anybody lived through the Renaissance. Uh, but picture some uh, what we might call biblically accurate angels. Depending on what corners of social media, media you inhabit, you may have seen some images here. I hope this doesn't give any of the children nightmares. But, you know, this is an image of... Maybe a more biblically accurate angel, you know, just the eyes all over and the wings. I don't know if you can read it, but the angel's saying, be not afraid. And the guy there says, sir, this is the scariest moment of my life. You know, in the Bible, angels terrify people. You know, th- think about some of the, the pictures of that heavenly court where the angels are, are there worshiping before God. And you have just these apocalyptic creatures 
covered with eyes and, and wings and faces like a lion or an ox or an eagle surrounding the throne with ceaseless praise and you might picture beyond them the, the hosts of heaven, the armies of the living God, you know, countless beings, the mere appearance of any one of which would make you fall to the ground and tremble with fear. You know, some have trumpets and censers and bowls of wrath that they're poised and ready to pour out when the lamb breaks the seals and the final judgment is released upon the world. And think of the throne itself. God the Father is seated. Revelation describes it as surrounded by a, a rainbow like an emerald, flashing with lightning and rumbling and thunder. And the one who's seated there is appearance like jasper and, and carnelian. Now imagine into that just frankly terrifying and awe-inspiring scene walks someone who looks like a lamb who was slain. Or in Revelation, he's also described as looking like a son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash, his hair as white as snow, his eyes burning like fire, his feet like burnished bronze, his face is shining like the sun in full force, and his voice is like the roaring of many waters. And he opens his mouth to speak. And what does he speak with that raging torrent of a voice? What words dare disturb the rhythm of ceaseless heavenly worship. He says your name. He says, he says you are mine. You are my disciple. He says this person is redeemed by my blood. Your name on the lips of the eternal Son of God, as he stands before the throne and pleads the merits of his death and resurrection on your behalf. A strong and perfect plea he makes. The voice of the crucified Savior shaking the heavens with your name. Let me tell you that nothing else anyone has ever said or will say against you can stand in the face of that proclamation. What the Son says about you before the angels of God is the full and final word about you. Nothing can gainsay that word. Not the world's slander, not the law's condemnation, not your own voice of shame and regret and self-loathing, not the, the cruelest verbal abuse you have suffered, not one drop of Satan's accusations. All of this falls away when Christ confesses before the very court of heaven that you belong to him. That's worth holding fast to your confession without wavering, even when it costs you your life. That is the truth that empowered Jesus' first followers to give up their lives for the sake of his name. We surely don't face death threats here and now, but in whatever way we face opposition, we need to lay hold of that same hope Today, we're justified by the cross of Christ. Our vindication is made by Christ himself before the angels of God. We don't need to be vindicated by the world around us. We certainly don't need to be vindictive. We have every reason to hold fast, come what may. Okay, verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is a difficult verse, and... 
there are a few different directions that uh, different teachers will go with this. One interpretation, which is kind of common in the early church, is that this verse is sort of another way of saying what Jesus said in verses 8 and 9, to blaspheme the Spirit, is to fall away in the face of persecution. If someone's a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in them and they turn away. Uh, that's blasphemous. However, uh, in both Mark and Matthew's accounts, as I said earlier, the statement about blasphemy is clearly tied to the accusation that other people had made about how Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan rather than by the power of the Holy Spirit. They attributed uh, Jesus' ministry against demonic oppression. They attributed that to Satan, called the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the devil. So there's a connection to opponents of Jesus um, rather than his followers there. Now, in either case... Uh, the reason this sin won't be forgiven is because the one who blasphemes the Spirit has had some evidence, some experience of the Holy Spirit's work and rejects it as evil. Remember that the Spirit's work is to reveal Christ. Remember, we quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So to blaspheme the Spirit you have to harden yourself against his ministry of showing Christ, calling you to repentance to such a degree that you convince yourself that ministry of the Spirit is evil. Thomas Aquinas uh, says that this kind of sin, um, roughly paraphrasing here, it's not a matter of doubting God's mercy and grace, but despising God's mercy and grace. Another uh, long-dead theologian, Hermann Bavinck, Dutch theologian, uh, points out that some things need to happen before someone is even in a position to blaspheme the Spirit. Those things are a revelation of God's grace in Christ, the nearness of the kingdom, powerful working of the Holy Spirit, an illumination and conviction so intense and powerful that one cannot deny the truth of God and has to acknowledge it as being divine. But in the face of that, you deliberately and, and defiantly de deny it anyway. The good that you've seen you call evil. So the reason this sin is not forgiven is that the very nature of this sin so damages the conscience that, again as Bavink says, it rules out all remorse, scorches the conscience shut, definitively hardens the sinner, and in this way makes his sins unpardonable. So the reason it's not forgiven is it's never repented of. Think about Pharaoh, who um, actually brought up earlier in, in this uh, section that we're in in Luke, in connection to the people who said this was uh, the, the devil's work. Uh, Pharaoh kept on, he, he saw the wonders uh, that God did through Moses in Egypt, but he kept on hardening his heart, even in the face of such an obvious display of God's power. Uh, think of the Pharisees. Saw Jesus free a man from demon possession and called it a work of evil. They have a clear presentation of, of God's will and God's work. They say no. I mean, in John's gospel, uh, they see Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and they say to themselves, now what? You know, if he, he keeps raising people from the dead, people are going to believe in him. Well, yeah. Think about how far they've gone. I don't know if they've fully blasphemed the spirit at that point, but they are well on their way to it. That means if, if you're worried that you may have committed this sin, you almost certainly haven't. 
If you can still repent, you haven't blasphemed the Spirit. So, is this just about the Pharisees and those who oppose the gospel? Is Jesus just telling his disciples about the kind of people that they will face? On the one hand, he is telling them about that. It does help to know that some people will speak against Jesus, but they can still be forgiven, assuming they repent. Don't write them off. It does also help us to understand that some people may tie themselves into such a knot rejecting the gospel that it can't be untied. Not that we should ever presume to know when that has happened, but don't be surprised when the rejection is irrational and, and obstinate. Instead, be afraid for those people. But this is also about you and me. I, I mentioned earlier that back in uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, Luke says that Jesus is speaking first to his disciples in this section. He says things like, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. That doesn't just mean beware of the Pharisees. It also means beware of becoming the Pharisees. That same leaven may work itself into you, may be at work in you. The same hypocrisy may be at work in you. There is one of the disciples, one of the twelve that Jesus is speaking to, that this absolutely applied to, right? Judas Iscariot was the same kind of hypocrite as the Pharisees, the exact same kind. John's Gospel tells us that Judas pretended to care about the poor because he managed the money bag and regularly stole from it. You know, when the money keeps rolling in, what's an Iscariot to do? Cream a bit off the top for expenses, wouldn't you? Here's a guy who made a big show of righteousness, but it was all about his own greed, his own pockets. And in that same greed, the fruit that it ended up bearing in his life is that he sided with the same Pharisees, the same hypocrites Jesus has been warning against. He sided with them and betrayed Jesus for money. Think about it. He'd been following Jesus all this time. Now, we saw earlier in Luke that Jesus sent out the twelve. Judas was one that was sent out to cast out demons and heal diseases. He was part of this. He saw the kingdom come even more clearly than the Pharisees did. By all appearances, he was as much a follower of Jesus Christ as the rest of them, but it was a show. To use the words of Jesus from earlier in the section in chapter 11, verse 35, the light in Judas was darkness. So the warning is for us in this room as well, for those who consider themselves followers of Jesus. You need to be honest with yourself about why you're here, about why you follow Jesus, about who he is to you, and be on guard against that little leaven of hypocrisy. This is a dangerous place to be if you're hearing the word of Christ every week and every week you only strengthen your resolve to keep pretending. It's better to heed the warning and confess it now than to keep letting it grow until it consumes you, to keep assuming that you can always repent later. So maybe this raises a question. Does this mean that uh, someone who is a believer can, can lose their salvation? Uh, that's a, a topic that Christians argue about. I don't believe that that's possible if you genuinely were a believer. I believe God will finish the work that he began in us, but I do believe the way he finishes that work 
is by giving us warnings like this. Those who have genuinely trusted in Christ will take heed and, and hear the warning and turn before it's too late. Perhaps some who have not genuinely trusted in Christ will come to recognize the danger that they're really in and, and turn to him. Either way, if you've heard these warnings and found them to be disturbing, that's a good sign because they're meant to wake you up, meant to drive you to examine your heart and your life. Don't shrink away from that because that's God's grace in preserving you and shepherding you and leading you home. These warnings aren't meant to destroy your assurance. They're meant to maybe keep you from taking it for granted. And what's more, these warnings aren't meant to place a burden of anxiety on you that you're unable to bear. These warnings are meant to show you how deep is your need for grace. You see that the stakes are so high, you know that you're not equal to the task in front of you, and you turn to Christ. Isn't it interesting that Jesus places so much weight in verses 8 through 10 on the words that you speak, but then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to say. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, just kind of a side note, uh, you, you might wonder um, if this means we shouldn't bother um, you know, with learning about apologetics or, or how to defend our beliefs or anything like that. It, Jesus doesn't say don't be prepared. And we've been talking about Peter a lot, and Peter, in, in his letter, 1 Peter, uh, says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. You, you should learn about uh, what you're able to learn, at least, about how to talk about your faith. The point's not, you know, don't bother knowing what you believe and why and how to talk to people about it. You know, if it comes up, the Spirit will let you know. No, the, the point is, don't worry about it. Trust the Spirit to guide your words in that moment. Prepare, but don't trust your preparation Trust the Spirit, and don't worry. So Jesus has done two things in this passage that we need if we are to stand firm in our confession of faith. First, he's shown us that it really does matter. It has eternal consequences. It's not just words. If you're going to risk or even give up your life for a, when a few words of denial would save your life, save the life of your family then you need to know that it really does matter. It really is necessary to cling to Christ, and it really is worth it. The warning is dire, but the reward is unimaginable. And secondly, Jesus promises that we're not on our own at that moment. The same Savior who confesses us before the angels of God is praying for us. The same Holy Spirit whom we dare not blaspheme dwells in us every moment and will guide our words when we need his help. The stakes are high, they're too high for us to stand firm in our faith, showing boldness without hostility, and gentleness without compromise. Now, who can handle that? Just by way of illustration, imagine that, um, I don't know, you can, you can set this in whatever country you, you want, but imagine that uh, you live in a country where uh, you're called to go to war. Uh, what do you need in order to face that challenge? Well, you'd need to probably be convinced that it's really worth it, that it really is necessary to, to risk your life. And what if you 
we're also had, having the assurance that um, you will survive. Uh, somehow God uh, shows you that, that, that you will live through this. You know, you know those two things. It really is necessary, and God's got this. That's what Jesus is saying in these passages. I think about Peter again. Why wasn't, Jesus, why wasn't Peter lost? He already said, because Jesus prayed for him. That was the lesson that Peter needed to learn. You know, Peter is, is noted for being bold and, and brazen. But he didn't ultimately end up suffering for the gospel and giving his life for the gospel because he got even more bold and brazen than he already was. He gave his life because he learned to be weak. He learned how weak he truly was. So he learned to rely on Christ's strength and not his own. Peter didn't suffer and die to prove that he had what it takes. Peter suffered and died for love of Christ and in service of the flock to feed the lambs that Jesus had called him to feed. On the basis of his death and resurrection, Jesus is our strong, perfect plea before the throne of God. Because his blood has made the perfect intercession for us, he died on the cross in our place. Because he's promised to confess us before the angels of God. Because he has sent his spirit to dwell with us and see us safely through whatever trials lie ahead, we can rest secure. I'm going to end by reading some words from the book of Hebrews on this topic. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he's inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you for the, the beauty and simplicity of that promise and the great cost that you were willing to pay and did pay to fulfill the promise that you made. We thank you that our hope of salvation is as secure as the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is secured by the cross. Your love for us is guaranteed by the blood of your Son.
we know that there are warnings we need to heed. We know that there is a call to endure and a call to persevere, that, that even though um, the price is paid entirely by Christ and the guarantee is made entirely by Christ, yet the way we live does matter and our faith if it is genuine, we'll have evidence. We know that uh, you have also uh, promised, predicted, told us, warned us that uh, trials will come of various kinds. And so we also ask that you would give us your spirit. Help us to endure. Help us to persevere to hold fast without wavering toward the end. We know that we are not equal to the task in front of us. We are weak. We confess that we do know fear. Uh, fear that would, if we let, let it, um, drive us away. If, if we harbor it and allow it to bear fruit, uh, would would lead us to fall away. Someone once said, we know if we could lose our salvation, we would. And so we ask that you would sustain us and guide us, be with us as you have promised through every trial that we face. For we know that this you have also purchased by the blood of your Son. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.